Okay, welcome back, folks. This is, what, episode 75? 75. That's crazy. I should be lucky enough to live that long or longer. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is also going to sound a little bit different. Uh, hopefully, our sound quality is going to turn out okay. We're using our fantastic road, roadie microphone. We were going to use microphones, but couldn't get the magic combination on GarageBand. Well, we're always using our microphones, but we're in person with I know, each that's, other. Yes, that's the big deal. It's like we're in in person, which is crazy. We're together. We, we don't know what to do. What like, was do it we look Janu- at each other? Was it January? Don't look at me in the eyes. <laughs> no eye contact. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been well over a year. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So episode 75, we're in person Mostly because you're going out of town. Yeah. And we had to make it work tonight. Yeah. So Um, we may have to uh, utilize the amazing, handsome, and talented Jason Usery to um, do some sound sweetening on this or something. But hopefully we'll be okay. (laughs) Let's see how it goes. Anyway, yeah, we're back together. This is the first time we've been back in the same room recording, even though we've hung out a couple of times safely and yeah it's kind of weird but it's good to be back you're looking at me weird no 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 sorry (laughs) sorry this is all very surreal okay people are tired of hearing us talk about that weirdness yeah but we're also coming up october will be four years that we've been doing this Uh, i i don't know where for well plus i don't know where the last year has gone period true but uh yeah that's crazy because you know what we were we were getting interviewed we were getting interviewed recently, and mm-hmm. I got it wrong. You had to correct me because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, I think we're going on two three. years. Like, or three, you're like, no. 2017. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, this is great. Um, so we're thinking up a couple of different events for in-person for folks. Um, we are considering a Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios. Right. We have reached out to our OG paranormal friends at Holly Weird Paranormal to see perhaps we can do a meetup at uh, Universal City Walk at a bar, and then we're going to get tickets and we're going to go into the park. And anybody that wants to come on down the same night, yeah, we'll do anybody that. wants to hang with us, it's great. Bring your Advil and a change of shoes. Oh my God, <laughs> dress yes, comfortable shoes. Because standing in line is no joke. It was a lot of standing in line. Well, like, it was different from Disney. It was a lot of standing we'll in line. We'll get VIP tickets this time, and then you there's like a fast pass lane. Okay. So We'll do that then. We're, we're going to go big. <laughs> um, so we will let you know as soon as we uh, solidify that, as long as it's still safe to do so. Um, the I saw right now that there's alert that... L.A. cases are back up to the levels they were in February for COVID. So let's see how that goes. Um, Still on for Savannah Crime Festival or Crime Expo in September. Yes. And we'll see what else. Maybe it's time for a uh, another watch party at least. Yeah. Watch party and maybe another sort of outdoor venue that we can find and have drinks at or something. Yeah. We could do we should do Bonnie and Clyde. For a yeah. watch party. Oh, that would be good. Yeah, yeah. So, cool. what's different about this week, Dr. Shiloh? Aside from everything we gushed about at the beginning, you mean our topic? Our topic, yes. Okay, so we are going to be covering the Skid Row Slasher. And along with that, looking at this fallacy of satanic murder, satanic serial murder. And what I want to do is really start with the case study, which is different than normal. 
and then get into some of the concepts so we can kind of go back and apply them. We're going to talk about a couple things that we covered really in the Night Stalker episode. We talked a lot about Skid Row right. with that, and that obviously plays a role in this one, as well as Satanism and or devil worship. Those get interchanged very loosely, and we'll we'll talk about why when people see something odd at a crime scene, they, they automatically jump to that. And we did talk, you talked about it quite a bit in that episode we did on the Night Stalker because of his supposed affiliations with it. Right, with the, the Church of Satan. And we so we won't go too far down that road again because if you want to, please go back and listen to that episode. Also look in the some of the show notes that we've mm-hmm. updated because we got corrected. I had my information wrong about the factions within the Church of Satan, which was wonderful to be corrected in that way. By the way, some of the Satanists I've talked to, nicest people in the world. Absolutely. And love the fact that we were corrected on um, the these criminal usage and adoption of this uh, ideology that is very different from what they purport it to be. And then we go, we're going to go a little bit further into vampirism. Right. We haven't talked about it. No. We've gotten actually a number of people asking about this. <laughs> and we wanted to find really the right sort of context to put it in. And of course, I say this every time. I sound like a metronome, not a metronome, a broken clock. <laughs> a broken record. A no. broken record. Oh my God, I can't even get my metaphors right. It's not even that late in the day. It's what not. am I doing? Um, what we do is find out that there's actually been some research on vampirism and it got initiated by sort of a fluke. And it circles back around to our OG psychologist, criminologist Catherine Ramsland. Oh, she makes another appearance. She does. She makes it a she makes a uh, ties it all together really beautifully. Nice. So Well, I can't wait to hear about that. And that that's really um going to be the deeper dive portion of this rather than regurgitating what we already did on Church of Satan. Uh although I'm going to talk a bit more about the fallacy part. So, let's start with the Skid Row slasher. This again very Los Angeles-centric. We are happy to talk about it because it was several decades ago now. But this individual, the perpetrator, his name is Vaughn Greenwood, and he was responsible for a number of very similar ritualistic crimes here in Los Angeles and actually in Chicago. And it spanned about 10 years from 1964 to 1965, or I'm sorry, 1975. He was 20 years old at the time of his first murders. He was originally from the Midwest. There is not a lot of information on his background. But he was given up by his parents at the age of five and then put into the foster care system at that point. Ended up dropping out of school in the seventh grade when he's around 12 years old and eventually makes his way out to the West Coast. So he earned a living by being a migrant worker, doing a lot of field work. Um, He's a black man. He's a gay man. And this is going to come into play when we talked about when we talk about victimology and some other underlying possible psychological concepts going on with Vaughn. So let's start with the the murder spree Um, in on November 13th, 1964. Greenwood kills 
David Russell, who's a 64-year-old homeless man who in the morning time was found on the steps of the L.A. Central Public Library. Mm. Gorgeous building down here in L.A., very art deco, basically a security guard comes to work in the morning and finds him. Actually, as part of my job, I work with the current team who are the security guards there. And so I just picture these people that I know and that I do some consultation work with and train, you know, if they were to, you know, schlep into work and show up one morning and here is this body on the steps, throat slashed, stab stab wounds throughout the abdomen. And it's just jarring. You know, it's, it's very jarring. So a day later, there's another murder in the same jurisdiction. It's not the same exact location, but Benjamin Hornberg, who is 67 years old, was found dead much in a similar way, throat slash, as well as stab wounds. And he was actually inside a seedy downtown hotel where he lived. Okay. And we are going to hear more about this, including some of the hotels that we, <laughs> the infamous hotels that we did um, along our, our walking tour. Yeah. So, so those two happen back-to-back days in 1964. They're unsolved at the time. The police don't know what happened, obviously know that they're related by the similar M.O., but nothing really happens in L.A. for a good while again. The following year, 1965, Vaughn Greenwood actually travels back to the Midwest, and he pops up in Chicago where he, well, he was tried and acquitted for a murder of a a homeless man that lived in kind of a skid row area, um, and he was killed in the same exact way. So do you, is there a skid row area in Chicago? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know you weren't there in 1965. No, but. I mean, but like any large city is going to have it. I mean, it, it would depend. I mean, I don't know if I, there was a place that we called skid row, but there, there were, you know, lower income, less – um, less monitored, less moneyed areas, you know, okay. around the city. Homeless. What are we like? I'm just noticing the first two are their ages are significant to me. Do we see that continually throughout? We his victims don't, but the next okay. victim is 70 years old. So this is also in the Chicago area. After Von Greenwood gets tried and acquitted for the 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 first murder in Chicago, he then is basically gets convicted for attacking a 70-year-old man who was also homeless with a knife. And there were some reports that they might have been romantically involved or linked or he had brought him home with him, even though they said he was homeless. You know, some people had apartments for the night or for the week. So there were some rumors of that. So I don't know if the ages are indicative of him finding people who are weaker, who are more vulnerable, or if there's something happening with looking towards, you know, if this started as some sort of romantic partnership at all. Well, you don't have to be coy about saying romantic. Like, it would be a hookup. Well, like, a sexual I mean, relationship. Yeah, exactly. Sure, sure. But also is, so these victims, is is um, anything else missing? Is money being taken? Are they robbed as well? Do we know? <sighs> We don't know what the early ones. It's going to play a part when he comes back to California. It it already makes me wonder, like, how many victims he had before anybody figured out. 
Oh, sure. He was doing this, sure, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and something else that comes up is, you know, when we talk about a sexual relationship happening is there wasn't any – I'm going to say there was no indication of any evidence of any sexual assault either. But I don't know that they would have been looking for that. Because if you're thinking, okay, violent killing – That's a great point. It's probably a man per- male perpetrator. They're probably not thinking, oh, should we check – this male victim for sexual assault. That's a really great point, especially this far back in time. Why would they even look for it until it's super explicit? Right. And however, I did not see anything with the couple of survivors that we have. I didn't read anything that they had talked about an attempted sexual assault. So he is convicted for this stabbing of the 70-year-old man in Chicago. He spends five and a half years in prison in Chicago and then comes back to California. And we know that he's back in California by October of 1974 because the murders really pick up here in exactly the same way and very nine murders in a very short amount of time. And when I say in the exactly exact same way, the very first victim that is killed is found on the lawn of the L.A. Public Central Library. So here we have Greenwood continuing his murder spree in December of 1974 and going right back to the same place as his first victim in 1964 and the same thing. Charles Jackson was the victim. His throat was slashed, and that's where he was found at the library lawn. Not even a week later... Moses Yakanak, who is an Alaska Native American, he was found in an area around Skid Row, also homeless. Um, this was on Broadway Street. He was killed in the same exact way. Two days later, on December 10th, Arthur Dalstedt was found in an alley down in Skid Row. He is now the third victim in less than two weeks, killed in the same way. And then at the end of December, December 22nd, we have David Perez, who was killed near the library. He was found in some bushes off to the side, not as out in the open as the other two, either on the stairs or on the lawn. Um, But he he also had his throat slashed and was stabbed. On January 9th, Kashmir Strazinski was found by a maid at his hotel. It was the Pickwick Hotel, and he had been murdered inside his hotel room. That hotel no longer exists here in L.A. I think there's one in San Francisco. He was the first one in January, and then the second one on January 17th was Robert Shanahan, and he was found in the McDonald Apartment Hotels, which also doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. And his throat was slashed, he had stab wounds, and he had a bayonet sticking out of his chest. Oh, my gosh. So we're talking violent and above and beyond, again, what it, what it needs to complete the crime or the MO. There's definitely signature here happening with the multiple stab wounds and the throat slashings. I mean, the throat slashings were so gruesome that it was down to the individual spine on most of these. Wow, that's brutal. It's really brutal. The seventh victim was Samuel Suarez. This was also in January, and he was found on the fifth floor at the Barclay Hotel. So I think this is one of the individuals that we heard about from our tour guide that was killed back in the 70s and was found in the the 
very violent and very haunted, supposedly, Barclay Hotel. Supposedly, there's a headless bellhop yes. that rides the elevators because he lost his life there in a tragic accident. Um, and then we have January 29th, George Frias. He was a hotel catering clerk. And the difference here, he's killed the same way, but he's actually found dead in his Hollywood apartment. So we have seven all in and around Skid Row. And then all of a sudden, there's this change to Hollywood. Anything that links Skid Row and Hollywood? I mean, pretty big homeless populations for Los Angeles. But even at that time? In the mid-70s? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not familiar with yeah. what's going on. I mean, well, no, I think 70s probably because that's really when certainly Hollywood Boulevard was really doing a deep. I mean, we we had a lot of serial killers at that time, <laughs> exactly too. Hard to Los track Angeles. them. Welcome to L.A. <laughs> so most guesses are that, you know, he was just picking on this population and – decided to change locations for whatever reason. And then on January 31st, the final murdered victim, Clyde Hayes, was also found in his Hollywood home. And he, again, was killed with um, stab wounds to the abdomen as well as his throat being slashed. So we have seven that were found near Skid Row, two that were actually in their homes or in their apartments in Hollywood. And this is where we start to see that he is breaking into the homes and stealing some items because this comes into his capture and prosecution later. But they still don't know who this guy is. There is a psychological profile that comes out in 1975. I'm going to talk about this before I talk about the last attack. And this gets published on the morning of Clyde Hayes' murder. So he he was the last person murdered. The psychological profile described the killer as a, quote, sexually impotent coward, venting his own feeling of worthlessness on hapless derelicts and drifters he kills. And we think he's trying to resolve his own inner conflicts by turning his wrath and hatred outward, end quote. So they went on to describe him as... Also friendless, poorly educated, a loner, probably homosexual, which is interesting because I don't know where they're getting that if there's no indication of sexual assault. And they said he has an unspecified physical deformity. Hmm. So this sounds very like early behavioral analysis unit prototype for what they used to say. And they also (coughs) said (laughs) – They also said – you're looking for a white man in his 20s. Right. Of course. Of course. There's <laughs> in his a, 20s or 30s. There's a lot of assumptions there. Uh, then again, we don't like, you know, this is reading reports 50 years later, oh, almost sure. 50 years later, and not knowing where they're getting all this stuff. So, I mean, I'll, I have a couple of things to say about it. But let's talk about the, yeah. about Clyde first. So... Uh, Actually, so we're going we're gonna to move on from the victim, Clyde, uh, and I want to talk about this, this attack that happens in February of 1975. So there are two men that are attacked in their Hollywood Hills home. They are attacked with a hatchet and a knife by Vaughn Greenwood, and they both survive. They fight with this guy like hell, um, so much so that one of them is fighting with Vaughn and they go through a window and fall out of the house, out on to the, the ground outside. And as he's fleeing, 
he drops an envelope that has his name and his address on it. Wow. <laughs> so wow. it was totally by luck, really, at this point that he ends up getting arrested at his home later. But interesting story here. So he there's this Hollywood home where he attacks these men. Burt Reynolds lives one house down from them. I have a relative that lived one house down from Burt Reynolds. Actually, she still lives there, and she's lived there, and she's was friends with Burt and Lonnie Anderson when they lived there. Oh, my gosh. Um, so she was there during this time. But Burt relays this really intriguing account of this night on the Dinah Shore um, show. So he says that actually he was out with Dinah the night of this attack, and he's like, come home. It's like you know, 3 a.m. or something, and I never lock my doors. I go in, I kind of plop down on my couch, and all of a sudden I see my neighbor crawling across my floor holding his guts in. So he goes to, he's like, "There's there wasn't a version of 911, but like I go to call the cops, and I see this man standing outside my window, and he's wearing my poncho that Clint Eastwood gave me from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and a cowboy hat. So Jeez. he was in Burt Reynolds' home. Trying on clothes. Wait, like, essentially, he thought, waiting for him. And then he was out so late, like, whether he knew it was Burt Reynolds' place or not when he broke in. But he was waiting and then put on his clothes, left, and went and attacked his neighbors. So Burt actually has to testify in the trial of this attack and he says that they asked him at, at trial, can you dis- do you remember what he looked like? You know, they had him point out in the, in the courtroom, of course. And then they say, can you remember um, what he looked like? And he goes, yeah. And these are his words. He looked like O.J. Simpson. Oh, he had man. a huge neck and had obviously been lifting weights. And I just thought, oh, my God, that quote is crazy. Um, but basically, he the, the Skid Row slasher looks at Burt Reynolds through the window and just slowly walks away. And then at some point, you know, drops the envelope. The cops find him. But Burt Reynolds' account is when he was in the courtroom. You know, the defense attorney gets up there and is like, well, isn't it true, sir, that you're an actor? <laughs> and, and Burt goes, well, the jury's still out on that. <laughs> And the judge turns to him and goes, this is not the Tonight Show. <laughs> Just answer the question. But that's a really good comeback. Isn't it the best? That's a really good – I mean, it, also, you provided a link. We should put it up. When we drop the episode, there's a link to a YouTube clip of the Dinah Shore Show. Yeah. Which is the way – if anybody watches BBC, like the Graham Norton Show – that's the way American talk shows used to be, where these people just went on. Most of them were drunk by the time they got on. Totally. They're totally – I mean, now it's just all promoting your movie or whatever you've got opening up. It was but great. Back then, it was just like celebrities jabbering. Right. Really funny. Yeah, because he's like, oh, yeah, the guy, you know, Skid Row Slasher, he killed like 23 people. And No, he didn't. But, <laughs> you know, he's making it very salacious. Well, I mean, it's... I mean, it's awful. It's pretty bad. <laughs> that was traumatic, of course. He said that, you know, he's he testifies in court, and then as he walks out, Von Greenwood is smiling at him, and he looks down on his notepad where Von Greenwood was writing, and it says, must kill Burt Reynolds, must kill Burt Reynolds. No. Yeah, that's what he says. Whoa. Wait, <laughs> does he say that on the interview? Yes. Yes. I did not remember that part. Okay. I, we got to see if we can get some verification of that. Yeah. Yeah. 
but still. But still. Wow. So I need to ask my elderly you know, father-in-law's cousin who still lives there, if she remembers all this. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I'm sure she totally does. So Vaughn Greenwood gets picked up. At his home, they find cufflinks and some other things stolen from other victims' okay. homes and or their person. And as he is taken into custody for that, the media is kind of trying to put two and two together. Like, is this the same guy? And is he wanted for these other crimes? And clearly the cops were looking into it. I think there was a, a gag order where they really couldn't talk about it. They didn't want to jeopardize the investigation or the the serious, you know, the investigation of the serious serial murder. But eventually they do convict him of nine counts of murder as well as the attacks on the two men. So were the two men, you said Clyde and his roommate? No, Clyde was the last one killed. These but- two guys were separate. These guys survived. Oh, okay. They were a couple. Yes. Okay. So that does kind of beg a question. Like, did they go down to Santa Monica Boulevard, where at that time was very, very sex work heavy. Right, right. um, Male sex work heavy and pick him up or, I mean, that, I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting for further research. Yeah. Another account, and I don't recall where this is from, but was talking about, because this is... This is Miller. What is it? Miller Street, Miller Avenue. That's right off of Sunset. Yeah. Right there. I only know that because that's where my relative lives. But also, you know, a place very common for drugs as well. And so was he like going into Hollywood Hills to try and steal stuff to then go get drugs? Like that was also a theory of being there and sort of this opportunistic crime. Right. He could have been talking to some drug or other drug user who says, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of celebrities that live up here. Yeah. Burt Reynolds is right up the hill. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Go get a Clint Eastwood's poncho and bring it back for some drugs. <laughs> so it all gets put together. Um, in total, we have 11 victims in Los Angeles, the two in 1964 and then the nine in 1974, wow. 75 all of the victims were male. And so here is a bit about the crime scene, because I, I told you what the injuries were. But we have also the fact that there was really evidence of some weird stuff going on. There were cups of blood found by most of the bodies with some indication that the perpetrator had been drinking the blood, as well as salt scattered around the bodies And then all of their shoes were taken off and facing, pointing towards the victim's head. Hmm. As well as what I, it it never said anything exact, but unusual markings or mutilations to the bodies. So markings, it, it said cryptic on some of the references that I had. So I don't know if it was like messages written or in blood or just weird and unusual mutilations, right. you know, along with the other stab wounds. This is what people, you know, caused some people to believe the murders were linked to Satanism or some sort of uh, devil worship. That's okay. really interesting stuff as well. I mean, in my limited knowledge of what evidence we have, there's not a lot indicating what kind of occult practice that would be, if it's anything. Salt is often used in many occult religions as Uh protection. But then why would he circle the body with salt to keep it protected unless he thought it was a sacrifice? Right. The shoes are very, very important in both 
hoodoo and voodoo, but you don't kill people in hoodoo and voodoo. That like that's that's not what I mean, you might use it to harm someone or to cause ill towards someone, but you don't kill somebody in order to make that happen. So it sounds like there there could be sort of these components like pulled out of the air from a couple diff- different places. Right, but it, I would also say that it could also be pulled out of watching a 1975 ABC TV movie. Totally. You know, like, so I'm not saying that this person had any background in the occult. We don't know that. And what I do, like, you know, those things of the way he is described it, sort of slowly looking at people and then walking away slowly mm-hmm. really gives me an, a sense of, like, he's this guy is psychotic. Yeah. Like, there's a psychosis yeah. acting on him that's driving him to do these things. Right. Right. Good. Let's let's put a pin in that. So generally, serial murders that have some component that may look like Satan worship or sacrifice – are not related to Satanism or the Church right. of Satan. <laughs> so what we have here, and let's go by what what's observable, what's recorded and documented, we have ritualistic behavior of some sort. Yes. And ritualistic behavior is a customary repeated act or a series of actions. So we can see this in various cultures as a part of religion, as a part of tradition. For example, having a turkey on Thanksgiving is a ritual. <laughs> why Why do we do that? Because we think the pilgrims and the Indians had a nice, a nice big dinner. dinner. <laughs> and then we pull the guts out, just like Herbert Reynolds' neighbor. I wonder if he survived. <laughs> yeah, they survived. Oh, good. They, did. they survived. They did. Yeah, they both testified at the trial, too. But there are – in crime, it can be seen as a behavior either before or after the crime – that is repeated and unique over a series of crimes. So okay. that's when we kind of see ritualistic behavior. Okay. Uh, when it's not Thanksgiving, when we do see it in crime, it's it's uh, before or after usually um, that it comes to our attention. And there's a variety of mental health disorders that can have associated behaviors that might appear ritualistic, but exactly, it's not because of some otherworldly a cold belief system or right. religious system. It could be that they are being compelled by auditory command hallucinations, sure. which is very common. It's not common, as we have said many times, it is not common for severely mentally ill people to act out in violence. It is very, very rare. But I think that you've given, given us like a, a perfect example of an extremely rare, out-of-the-ordinary outlier yeah. perpetrator who has these these uh, factors engaged in their mental health process. Right. So it, like you said, it could be um, command hallucinations. It could be some sort of false belief that is driving them to this behavior. And one that is linked very close with this, and I can't remember the guy's name, but up in the Sacramento area, the guy that thought his blood was turning to dust. Yes. And was drinking, killing and drinking other people's blood. So, I mean perfect example of a false belief of why he's doing this. You know, even obsessive compulsive disorder, people are compelled to do ritualistic behaviors. We don't necessarily see that come into play in crimes. Right. But it's it's a way in which ritualistic behavior comes out in people. Yes, but that's a very interesting comparison or example you give because in in that type of diagnosis, it's almost always centered on orderliness and the compulsions are about an orderedness unless it's switched over into hoarding. 
So there are different mm-hmm. domains, but like, when have we ever heard of an OCD killer? Right. You know? Right. I'm, I'm sure there's a uh, episode on, on the CSI. IT channel called that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but all of this to say that a series of crimes can be ritualistic, but it does not mean it's satanic. Right. People just like to jump to that. I mean, I've seen a lot of researchers talk about this, and they agree that motivation is important. If a crime scene had a bunch of crucifixes present, would we call it a Christian crime? <laughs> you know, I mean, why? Like, why are we taking symbols and making these leaps? But since the beginning of time, we have had atrocities committed in the name of organized religion. And the victim is usually targeted because of their differences to the perpetrator and their religion or their belief system. And that's not what we have happening here. It's also been suggested that a true satanic murder would be rationally planned and motivated by the need to fulfill a prescribed satanic ritual. And the researchers in this area say you'd be really hard-pressed to find a murder that fits that definition. Yeah. Like if we're going to work backwards and say, here's a definition. Okay, show me the crime. It doesn't exist. I know that there's an example in Europe that's only maybe less than 10 years old of a ritualistic death metal band that had, you know, engaged in a sacrifice that was somewhat organized and planned, but they are nowhere near any any of what we would consider the Church of Satan. Nobody's claiming them. Nobody's claiming them. It's like, we don't do that. It's yeah. always these outliers that come across as very sociopathic and narcissistic at the same time, a good narcopath. Yeah, yeah. There's usually other factors and motivations present if you have something that looks like this, such as, we've already said, severe and untreated mental illness, maybe anger fueled by a grievance. and Or yeah, a perceived grievance, perceived, right? Perceived, that's a great, yeah, let's, let's definitely say that. What did Burt Reynolds do to him? <laughs> He's right. just like he's just like scribbling on his notepad is like kill Smokey, kill Smokey. Oh my kill Smokey. gosh. I don't know. Maybe it was his singing in Best Little Whorehouse. Oh in my Texas. that well I, I you know what I can was I can understand out? that anger. That was bad. It was God love Dolly know. though. I know, I know. And here we are, we're gonna get into your section in a moment, but the drinking of blood can really fulfill any number of motives or needs other than devil worship. <laughs> so we can have the false belief system, a bizarre false belief. could even be a paraphilia. So Right. I, I did want to tie this together in a very weird way, as I usually do. And I want to say about, you know, in the Catholic Church, the process of priest converts wine to Christ's blood. And we don't blink an eye about like, oh, this is, you know, like I, I was not Catholic. I was raised right. Methodist, but I was always like, oh, this represents. And then I had a Catholic friend go, no, you have to understand in the Catholic belief system, it becomes Christ's blood. And we all line up to and drink it. And we line up to drink it, which was never kind of part of the Protestant um, ideology sure. that I understood, but maybe I was too young to understand it. And then as much as we would, we, it's easy for us to gloss over the idea of Christian-oriented crimes, we actually do have many Christian-oriented crimes that usually are on the fringe Mm-hmm. of established religions. And the most recent one, of course, is Lori Vallow. Right. You know, Lori Vallow, clearly mentally ill in right. some way or fashion, 
and narcissistic, thinks that she's a cult leader, thinks that she's anointed by God. The end of the world. Is the coming. end of the world is coming, and it's okay for her to dispatch her biological children in the way she did. So, yeah, all we have to do is like hold the conversation open a little bit more, yeah. and suddenly these examples start True. bubbling up, which I think is fascinating. So, yeah, that's that is a great beginning. I think I want to just kind of file away. The whole idea of it having anything to do with Satanism. Yep. We covered that in an earlier episode like we talked about, and it's just not relevant here. But again, because we tend to do this in this country is we just want to slap a label on it. And there's not a lot of room for people to have alternative beliefs. We do it to people that aren't Judeo-Christian, marginalized people. And another example is the West Memphis Three, because mm-hmm. one of the alleged perpetrators had one book on Wicca, which is a nature religion. <laughs> right. One book on, they completely framed that these three boys were engaged in satanic killings. Yeah, because so, it's, a, it's a nice little explanation that wraps it all up, just the, like Amanda Knox. Oh, an, oh yeah. A that, satanic sex cult, uh, right? I mean, it has to be that. Yes, oh. the, she was a witch that was a part of the or the cabal of witches that had been in that village for oh, good hundreds Lord. of years. How did that police officer keep his job? She's just an exchange student. Come on. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So suffice to say, people are into blood. (laughs) For many reasons. For many reasons, right. I mean, that that was a deep dive that I took, which was very, very interesting. And some also, I got sent in a couple of different areas. So, you know, for somebody who engages in like a vampiric crime, so then the only reason we're connecting these two, because it's so interesting, is that there were cups of blood. So it's very easy for that sort of salacious, sexy term to be used and attached to describing murders. Because at one point, the son of Sam was called like vampire killer, but it's just an easy term. And I wanted to explain a little bit more about that. You know, is there really an actual diagnosis for someone who thinks they're a vampire or they exhibit behaviors that we would culturally align with vampire actions or behaviors? And it's the answer is yes and no. So yes, there are actual DSM diagnoses that this sort of behavior or belief system would fall under would be on the extreme ends of the spectrum. It could be delusional. And there's certainly some historical accounts of people who thought that they were vampires. But then there's also very much a growing understanding of a subculture in within our community that is vampire culture. And they have further subdivisions within them. And for one very big part of it is a paraphilia. Mm-hmm. And paraphilia is described as? As an unusual sexual interest or attraction. There are several paraphilias that are illegal. And that the, the very definition of the illegal ones is because it does not involve consent. Right. So is this Twilight's fault for making these spinoff 
groups of people that believe or want to be vampires. <laughs> no, in fact, I like, and I'm a huge fan of vampire fiction as well, but I think Twilight, I don't even, like, to be honest, God love Stephanie for making all the money that she made. I mean, that's great. But it's it's sort of like that's not a vampire. That's not a vampire. <laughs> that's one of the things that Dan and I were like, quit changing the rules. Just oh, quit changing right. the rules. Well, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, kind of talking about paraphilia, that that type of we've probably talked about this before, but how paranormal porn, especially like fan fiction type and written paranormal porn is so enticing to women because you have, you know, generally like the. The hot, sexy vampire is, like, the guy that lives forever. He never ages. He's going to take care of you because he's rich and he's got a castle. You know, it falls into line with a lot of the emotional things that women want. But then also it's sexy time, too. Well, (laughs) yeah. I mean, somebody pointed out how creepy it was that Edwin in Twilight – or Edward, sorry. I don't – don't come after me. I called him the wrong name because I know there are huge fans out there. But that he's, like – 250 years old and she's a teenager. So yeah. they're that age difference. Like That is a bit of an age pretty difference. Pretty creepy. <laughs> that's anyway, illegal in California. <laughs> there are several legit researchers in this area, including Idaho State University Professor of Social Work DJ Williams and Dr. Emery Williams from Glender University in Wales. And there was this term that Richard Knoll, who is a, a well-known psychologist, very well-known, well-respected psychologist, and he sort of jokingly came up with this term called Renfield syndrome to describe people that had these desires. And Renfield is a classic character from the story Dracula. He becomes Dracula's thrall, basically. Dracula bit him once, I guess, enough to make him his slave, and now Renfield has gone insane. And eats bugs and flies and keeps talking about the little bits of life. And, of course, his goal is he begs Dracula to turn him into Uh, a full vampire. And how do you know his storyline so well? I know his (laughs) storyline because at the Huntsville Community Ballet, when I was in high school and on scholarship there, I played Renfield in (laughs) Lloyd Tigett's uh, ballet version of Dracula, which was actually pretty good. It was like it was actually really cool. I should see if there's tape of that from anywhere. <laughs> Earlier this week, Scott clued me into this, and I was like, "What? There's other characters in Dracula other than Dracula?" <laughs> I know. Oh yeah, there's there's tons of them, really. So they he thought that this would be like this sort of desperate, needy, groveling, but not supernatural. This person who's gone insane would be, you know, a, a term to use. But he meant it as a joke. And unfortunately, in 2010, his joke was picked up by another set of researchers, and they published it in their their paper on uh, hemomania, which is uh, really sort of a, a manic desire for blood. And then it got, but they noted that it was that it wasn't really a DSM DSM diagnosis; it was made up. Mm-hmm. But by then. It was already out of bed because people weren't reading that it was a made-up diagnosis, and then it just gains traction. We and are really creating a list of these I know, situations right? where it's Stockholm Syndrome and Munchausen. I mean, it's really interesting. Right. So there's a term called vampirism or clinical vampirism that got sort of folded into Renfield Syndrome, and those are actually two different things. In 2010, over 50,000 people have been identified as being addicted to drinking blood, and they've appeared in psychiatric literature since 1892. Oh, 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's going back really far even to like literally one of our big Bibles of psychology, Mm -hmm. which is by Richard von Croft Ebbing, which was Psychopathia Sexualis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And many medical publications concerning clinical vampirism can be found in the literature in forensic psychiatry. They feel that it's part of an aspect of many of violent crimes. But these are going back really far, too. And, of course, if you go back to the 1800s, you're looking at things that were really recorded as the most heinous of crimes as compared to other criminal acts. Isn't there a phenomenon in they see this in malnourished populations, sometimes with pregnant women who they're not getting the proper nutrients their body needs. And so then they have these sort of irrational um, cravings. Well, that's called pica. Okay. And I was fascinated by that because that's actually something that happens. It used to happen in the South all the time. Right. Because in certain rural communities around the world, women would start getting cravings to mm-hmm. eat dirt or clay. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was because there's a, their bodies were missing a mineral. Right. And they were picking up on, like, that just, I can smell that. There's something in that I need to eat. So, but that's for a nutritional deficit to well, be Well, I'm wondering filled. if the same thing with iron and blood. Have it, did you see any of that? Well, that's that's where they're putting research, but there's no connection. What is really fascinating about it is that all those people that they've identified in a study of 950 self-identified sanguinous people who ingest blood, this was between 2006 and 2014, they reported historically a stronger history of medical problems, including asthma, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, and endocrine system disorders, much more significantly than the general population. So maybe there is something to that, but I can't find any actual medical data where they're able to find something in the blood work or something in the hormonal system that is pulling them towards this. Interesting. So Renfield syndrome, going back, Richard Knoll is the psychologist. He was a graduate student when he was creating, you know, tongue-in-cheek a diagnosis that would use this term, and it just went out of control. But he even went so far as to say that there's criteria. So he's just like pulling stuff out of his ass, (laughs) right? So he said that the individuals with the syndrome are primarily male, which actually, with the known data, does seem to dovetail with that and that they believe that the blood has a mystical quality as if it can enhance their lives. And so then he went even further and even kind of dug himself into a ditch further with this sort of diagnostic protocol and he generated or posited a number of very specific stages. And again, the problem is he's pulling all of this just out of thin air and he's saying stage one is like a prepubescent event where the child gets excited in a really sexual way by some event that involves blood injury or the ingestion of blood. We do have a legit version of that. Like that's where the majority of foot fetishes and shoe well, fetishes say, that's come paraphilia. from. Paraphilia. Absolutely. Like 101. Absolutely. So the guy clearly is a okay. grad student. He's pulling he was, from right, some stuff. He, right. That's legit. Then he says during puberty that the initial excitement becomes enmeshed with these sexual fantasies and that typically the individual with this development of Renfield syndrome will begin by experimenting with what they call auto-vampirism, meaning they drink their own blood first and then they move on to other living creatures. So hmm. engaging in this activity then develops 
some compulsive components. So then he's positing that you're going to start seeing the individual with an irresistible urge, particularly one that goes against their wishes. Like, I don't want, I don't want to have this desire. And I think that's where his, his, his play time kind of falls flat. Chain me to the bed tonight so I don't go out and right, drink exactly. someone's blood. <laughs> but Noel um, and his companion, they didn't take it seriously. And he even says in an interview later that he was contacted by a documentary company and he told him, but wait, it's just, it's just a joke. But by this time, really, the cat was out of the bag. In the Journal of the History of Neurosciences, uh, Regis Olry and Dwayne Haynes published an article, Renfield Syndrome, a Psychiatric Illness Drawn from Bram Stoker's Dracula. So, okay. And then they didn't give it full credence, but then it was just already gone. So actual clinical vampirism has more definitive criteria in that it's a delusional notion that an individual is a vampire and therefore needs blood. And this arises from an erotic attraction to blood and the idea that it conveys certain powers. And it develops through fantasies involving sexual excitement. But they want to make the stipulation that it did not develop through the exposure to media portrayals of vampires, which I think is a really interesting carve out there. I love that they say that explicitly. Right. That, no, this is not because of that. It came from something else. And then, I mean, there seems to be like they're making a definition of the media portrayal of vampires is what gives more life and substantial support of the goth culture, Mm -hmm. which there's really an overlap Mm -hmm. between elements of goth culture and sort of the vampire lifestyle, as it were, like dressing it all in black or you know, even going so far as to like having prosthetic fangs and right. hanging out with others that share that vampire lifestyle. So they're saying that the the actual criteria is a combination of an actual delusional notion that they believe they are a vampire as well as the sexual paraphilia component. Right. There's a great article that will be posted in our show notes also that was from about 2005 no, 2011, where in the Atlantic, where the male author had identified a male vampire who was a book own, a bookstore owner and was sort of keeping low profile, but he worked in the vampire community. And he had said, I'd like to interview you and I'll let you drink my blood. And then he describes the whole process is actually incredibly uh, hygienic like he, there's a, a sterilized, like a, an individual knife mm-hmm. that he has in order to make the incision and everything sterilized. And he has paperwork for the article writer, the author to sign that says we're consenting. This right. is an adult consenting thing. And he's at, in, ultimately at that time, the author who was willing to engage in it was not able to because the vampire has uh, motor problems where he was not able to hold the knife steadily. So, well, I mean... (laughs) That's not the guy you want. It's really not. (laughs) And they were going to wait for someone. They were going to wait for his partner, his female partner, to come home. And she, who also engaged in the activity, was going to do the cutting. And the author kind of says tongue-in-cheek, he goes, you know, our... Our sharing of this uh, blood was not done in by some mystical challenges, but rather that his partner missed the A train and couldn't get get here in time. So it didn't end up happening? It did not end up happening. So we have the vampire lifestyle, which is a term for contemporary subculture of people 
largely within the goth subculture. And they may consume the blood of others as a quote-unquote pastime that represents social or sexually intimate connections. And this subculture is thought to have emerged mainly from the recent history of popular culture related to cult symbolism, horror movies. And I strongly believe basically it's been reinvigorated in the genre because of Anne Rice's interview with a vampire. So, I mean, I remember being like just into my teens when Interview with the Vampire came out, or maybe even a little younger. And it was like what everybody was grabbing at at school. Like, everybody's like, what is this? And, like, they're having sex, and they're, like, beautiful, and they live forever, and they have all these powers, and they're tortured. You know, So it's a perfect timing, really, for a generation coming of age. Absolutely. And then, of course, there's a whole series of books, and Anne Rice is a wonderful, wonderful author, and she... She asks a lot of questions, actually, that I think are fascinating in regards to sort of the philosophy of life when you have eternal life. Like, she asks a lot of questions. What gives your life meaning when you have all these powers? You're immortal. And they give examples in the later books of people who have lived, you know, thousands of years and they're going insane Mm -hmm. because there's just they've done everything. They've killed millions of people. Or hundreds of thousands of people. Well, what they didn't that? have Netflix yet, so. Oh, my gosh. That's right. I mean, you could watch all of Netflix. Right. Speaking of which, there's also <laughs> a series now called A History of Witches, which was based on a, a pretty decent novel. It's about a witch um, and a vampire getting it on. Oh. And it's exactly that thing. It's like this romantic, you know, dark vampire who tames his powers tells her don't run if the wind touches your hair i'll, I'll have to attack you oh like, god it's, like, it's very very funny and of course i'm watching all the episodes i'm sure you very are. funny that's what you're gonna do on your vacation yeah sure so they even drilled the terms down further active vampirism within these subcultures includes both blood-related vampirism commonly regarded using the latin terms sanguine vampirism so blood vampirism And that entails the ingestion of the substance. And then there's also psychic vampirism, which is supposedly feeding on the person's energy. And you can be mentored by a person to learn how to go into big gatherings of people and basically just suck the life out of them. Oh, I know some people like that. (laughs) Right. So, but these are defined, both of these categories are defined as two types of individuals who cannot adequately sustain their own physical mental or spiritual well-being without the taking of blood or vital life force energy from other sources. Okay. So, so look, I mean, I get it. Like the, the <laughs> you know, this, this, the, 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 inter- the vampire that was being interviewed, haha. Um, like he explained it and he said that he needs it, like that, that it, it, it's something that sustains him. And it's not a lot. It's like a couple of teaspoons a few times a week. As well as, like, you know, having the regular meals and stuff. So is that guy delusional? I don't know. I was wondering if it was some kind of conversion disorder. Like, I mean, we talk about morgulons and, you know, these other disorders. For years we poo-pooed and said that absolutely doesn't exist. And then now there are researchers coming forward going like, oh, Epstein-Barr is actually kind of a thing. And, oh, no, there actually is a very tiny amount of people in the world that do have morgulons and overproduction of collagen in their system that causes these things to emerge from their skin. So, you know, I just think we need more research. So an even further drilling down into the term is 
hematomania, which is the craving to drink blood. So that's when we get really into a mental health disorder as opposed to a paraphilia right. or a chosen outlet for sexual intimacy it's and behaviors. Right, right. So there's a compulsive uh, element to it. Individuals with this compulsion describe it as an intense thirst-like sensation. They assert that their hematomania is an addiction with withdrawal-like symptoms. And they can substitute animal blood sometimes, but they assert that they by far prefer preference of fresh human blood. Mm. So the frequency and the amount of the intake can vary, but for many... A few teaspoons, even just once a week, is enough. So, but once again, you have to have your regular diet. So, you have a teaspoon for breakfast, a teaspoon for lunch, and then a sensible dinner. <laughs> I can't. I can't even remember to take my vitamins. Did I have my blood today? Did, Did I have I... my True Blood? <laughs> true Blood was a fun series. True, that was I loved fun. True Blood. I just I love can... that they exploded. That was awesome. Did, I know. Did I ever finish True Blood? I don't think I. You got to finish it. it. It's got a really. It wraps up some of the storylines really well. Do you think they have like their little um, like pill container that says Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and like it has their blood, like their teaspoons of blood, so they know? Well, it's not fresh if you're doing it oh. that. You have to get it fresh. So, yeah. And this is their own, or no? It's got it from others. I mean, Ugh. yeah. Okay. Better so find a partner. Yeah. Find a partner that you guys can drink each other's blood. So, n- not surprisingly at all, there is a higher count of research. Uh, participants who live in New Orleans. Uh, It's a very private community of sanguinous. A researcher, Dr. Browning, has found his way into this community and gotten a lot of trust, so he's able to get more information. But it's very interesting, and he used a really great point, using the widespread discrimination against uh, individuals who prefer BDSM practice as a, a their outlet for sexual connection. He uses that as a reference point, and he says that vampires' fears to come out are far from unwarranted, and like because it, it's a lot like kink, because mm. we really only remove kink from the DSM recently. Vampirism highlights how ill prepared our systems are to deal with non conventional lifestyles and deviance, which also is something that, with a lot of humor and clever writing, that's what True Blood yeah. did as a series. Absolutely. So there's our sanguinous. Wanted to talk about that. Go through, we wanted to touch just as another tenuous connection is David Richard Berkowitz, portrayed fantastically. I'm blanking on the actor's name. Can you look him up? Yeah. Because that actor that played him on Mindhunters was fantastic. He was in prosthetics and a great wig, looked just like Berkowitz. But there was so much great about what they did in his portrayal of that character that was fantastic. But the actual guy, not such a nice guy. He's known as the son of Sam and the 44 caliber killer. He's an American serial killer who pleaded guilty to eight shootings that began in New York City on July 29th, 1976. So his first victim was 18-year-old Donna Loria. It was first thought to be a gang-style killing, but police became really concerned after two more murders and several attacks. As the attacks added up, the crimes were tied together by the same weapon. It was a 44 caliber pistol. Now, in April of 1977, a young couple, Alexander Esau and Valentino Siriani, were shot to death. And Berkowitz left a note at the scene of that crime that claimed he had been ordered to carry out the murders by his father, named Sam, 
and his father was a vampire. So that's what the note says. Mm -hmm. On July 31st, 1977, so really only a couple of weeks later, he claimed his sixth and final victim, 20-year-old Stacy Moskovitz, and he attacked her while she was with her boyfriend, Bobby Violante. Bobby survived his injuries. Unfortunately, uh, Stacy did not. And when he was finally taken into custody, he admitted to all six murders and the other shootings. He claimed that he had been ordered to kill by his neighbor, Sam Carr, who passed messages through his demon dog. So I think there was even like a hole in the wall, like he had punched a hole in the wall of his bedroom and he said that the dog, the demon dog spoke to him through through that hole. So a lot, lot of very creative, interesting stuff that Berkowitz is, is asserting. Um, multiple mental health professional psychiatrists included um, all debate as to whether or not he was psychotic with the diagnosis of schizophrenia, paranoid type. And like I said, Mindhunters definitely lean towards the possibility that Berkowitz was feigning mental illness. Right. They, they have a moment where they're asking and you can see a change in Berkowitz's face where he's like, clearly, you know, kind of implying I'm making all this shit up to get better housing. Right, right. And in the Sons of Sam documentary, there's later interviews with him where, you know, clearly he can carry on conversation. I mean, there's an argument to be made that if he's in prison, he's likely medicated and can carry on conversations with the interviewer and answer that. And they don't talk about the mental health stuff necessarily, but... The differences between someone who is clearly coming up with these bizarre delusions and hallucinations to then what we see later, there's a big difference. Now, whether he was feigning or whether he's medicated. Well, he changed the story, too. So he. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, even the note, that, the note, everything he was claiming, that sort of implies that there is a significant um, factor of mental illness occurring. But then he later just completely dropped it all. And he said it was all a hoax and he was just pissed off and sexually frustrated at women. And he was just going to, like, take it out on women, which sounds like another recent crime and another topic that we talked about. Right. And a more probably accurate description or grievance. But then, of course, there's the theory that it was multiple people. There is. There is a theory that was supported by the mother of his last victim that Berkowitz um, along with his neighbor's two sons, were actually involved in a cult called the Disciples of Hell. Right. And that the killings were part of an occult ritual. So Berkowitz will neither confirm nor deny that story, but he has become a born-again Christian and has his own ministry in the church, I mean, on the web, via the prison, which is odd to me how you can do that. And it is weird that the two alleged accomplices died under mysterious circumstances. Certainly. However, I would say... 70s, 80s, New York, a lot of people died <laughs> under mysterious circumstances. So and it's a, there is that. It, the documentary, you know, it kind of lost me, I think, as a lot of people thought um, along the way as it got a little bit more outlandish. But if you want to just see New York in the 70s and just the characters that people were, just watch the first episode. That's all you need. Yeah. <laughs> So Oliver Cooper is the actor that played him. Yeah, he did a really, really great job. You know, I mean, one of the things, too, just to always remember about serial killers, generally speaking, they like to generate their own publicity. Yeah. So this is something that would have guaranteed him some pretty specific publicity. 
circling back to the early history of when people started noticing this kind of behavior, and remember we're springing all of this off the fact that our main case study today had gone to the trouble of putting the blood in the cups for whatever that meant to him. We have sort of taken that as a lead to jump into vampirism. So back in the mid-1880s, a German neurologist named Richard von Kraft Ebbing wrote of this presentation of several attacks that involved the ingestion of human blood or flesh. And he asserted that those acts were compulsive and that they were aimed at a victim in a way that suggested lust. So he described in this book, Psychopathia Sexualis, an example where a 24-year-old winemaker had lured a 12-year-old girl into the woods, murdered her, and then when he caught, he admitted that he also drank her blood, mutilated her genitals, tore out and ate part of her heart, and then buried her remains, which at the time, mid-1880s, that would have almost certainly supported like a werewolf theory oh, sure. as well. Like that would have been to, to tear a body apart like that. Some supernatural uh, attributing it. To yeah, that because would have you, been... you can't understand, you can't imagine that right. a, a person, an, a normal person would do that. It would right. have to be something supernatural. Mm-hmm. Of course, Ebbing is trying to present like, no, there are people that are mentally ill and driven to do these things. A number of murderers have performed like what seem to be vampiristic rituals on their victims. Serial killers, Peter Curtin, Richard Trenton Chase, both called vampires in the tabloids after they admitted to drinking the blood of the people they murdered. And then in 1932, there was a case in Stockholm, murder, unsolved, where they nicknamed the killer the vampire murder because of the circumstances of the victim's death. Then even going back farther into the 16th century, we have A story that's always fascinating to me, and there's been several movies about this, and Lore did a great episode on their podcast, but there's also a lot of research that's been done about Elizabeth Bathory, and she was particularly infamous in later centuries because she basically was uh, a Hungarian heiress and living in her castle, just running the thing, running it as if she was a psychopath, and she was murdering servants and then became convinced that she became younger when the blood spilled on her. So she was murdering all of these girls from the villages. Then suddenly the village was like, we're not sending any more of our girls up to the castle. Uh, So she started sending out to other kingdoms and duchies across Europe, like, oh, please send your young women. And then they would, like, disappear. And she also tortured them really horrifically as well. So admittedly... Real vampirism is still just at the beginning stages in research. And while we're waiting for academics to catch up, there are people within inside the community that wanted to commission their own study. And those are the ones that came forward, gave all this data. And what we were able to pull from the data is that they had the people who engage in this behavior and feel compelled to do it do have significant chronic medical issues. I really love that Dr. Ramsland wants to kind of toss out those terms and replace it with one called vampire personality disorder, (laughs) which is kind of more specific to the criminal sphere in ways. She includes clinical vampires as well as killers compelled by bloodlust and people who exploit the vampire image to act out fantasy scenarios in a way that harms others. And that is particularly where the criminal element comes in, like where we have these really sort of hardcore goth teenagers that end up murdering 
their significant other's parents. And there's a number of those. And they always want to adopt either this identity of being a vampire or an identity of being a sorcerer or a devil worshiper or something like that. Um, But I love that she ends her article in Psychology Today by saying, uh, she's talking about vampire personality disorder. She goes, shouldn't this get some more traction? Like, I, like I, love on, she, I love it. She's like, I'm making up a term. And I, hey, I, I want this to catch on. Yeah. And uh, she says, but so far, no prestigious journal or diagnostic manual has taken vampire personality disorder seriously. Maybe I should think of a better name. Perhaps Mina's disorder or Edward Cullen condition. How about Lestat's lament? Dracula's disease? I'll keep working on that. Rensfield's syndrome is already staked out. Uh, but I welcome all other suggestions. That's hilarious. I love that. Now, all things being said, though, that, like, there really have been some horrific murders throughout history. Countess Bathory is a great example. We find out later that a lot of historians have come back and said that may have been exaggerated because her family actually wanted to get the castle and the land back. Oh, that's how you do that? Yeah, but now it's so far back in history, like... How do we know? Right. Did they did they paint all these stories of her as being a horrific murderess for financial gain? Hmm. We don't know. What we do know is that Rod Farrell in 1996 murdered his friend's parents, and he had started or was part of a vampire clan that actually his mom brought him into because she was into a vampire role-playing game. So they kind of took LARPing into real life in a really dangerous way, and he brutally, brutally murdered his girlfriend's parents. So to me, that sounds like he's committing this brutal murder for whatever reason, but also happens to be in this vampire clan. It's not as if they're really entangled in one another. Right. But it's also, I think that there's a shared delusion, like how much of what he picked up from his parents Mm -hmm. did he really believe? But he was very, he was described as being charismatic and he did convince two teenage girls that like, yes, I'm actually a, a 500-year-old vampire, and I can bring you over and make you right. uh, immortal. And then a- another one, Danielle and Manuela Ruda, uh, they described themselves as lifestyle goth Satanist vampires, and they decided to murder 33-year-old Frank Hagen, and they both stabbed him 66 times. And they were disappointed that they didn't turn into real vampires when they committed the crime. They thought that they would do that. But then they came up with a defense in uh, in the court. They compared their trial to blaming a car for a vehicular collision. Manuela testified that their actions were the execution of an order. Satan ordered us to do it. We had to comply. It was not something bad. It simply had to be. We wanted to make sure that the victim suffered well. It's very slender man. Very. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So very. Who knows if there's like a dramatic element for her where she wants to be seen in a certain way? But that sounds like a folia do, yeah. like we've spoken about in previous episodes. Right. So I find it fascinating. There's been a couple of really great examples. I mean, there's tons of great vampire movies, but when we come to movies about people that think that they're vampires, there's a great black comedy with Nicolas Cage, Vampires Kiss which I highly recommend watching because it's really one of his absolutely batshit crazy performances, and it's hilarious. (laughs) One of them. And then BBC came out with a production a couple of years ago that was a retelling of the Dracula story that's really fascinating. It has all the 
horror and supernatural elements that you would want. And there's also a psychological and philosophical view on why he exists. And I don't want to give it away because I think it's a fascinating story. But basically, I'll tell you that, like, Dracula is a vampire, but he's delusional. Oh. So. Very interesting. Highly recommend it. Well, so going back to whether it's Vaughn Greenwood, Son of Sam, the Night Stalker, what we really have here are ritualistic behaviors with some sort of calling card or perhaps the perpetrator wanted it to look as if Satanism is involved or whatever their own definition of what Satanism or devil worship is or what that should look like. Rather than we we never find that they are really attached to any of these organized occult groups. Right. I mean, it's also not it's really reading these articles that humanizes people that engage in this behavior. You start to think like how unfair it is that they're engaging in behaviors that are between consenting adults. It's not my kink. Right. You know, certainly not right. my kink. But it would be as if somebody becomes the hotel maid killer. And they use all implements that hotel maids. And it's like, this killer has to be a hotel maid because they know how to yeah. tuck that sheet really bad, <laughs> really well. You know, like suddenly it's making hotel maids look dangerous. Right. Well, and it's also the idea of how can we further label killers so that we feel like so they're less and less relatable or they're less and less human. Oh, that's a great right? point. Like, how can we buffer them and keep them labeled and put on the shelf with this this label in this jar so it to doesn't feel as real or as scary? It's the monster. You can make them the monster, and you can ease that way. You can say, "Well, I'm not that." Right. And and whoever is chasing after them can say, "Well, I'm not that." I mean, it's very interesting because that's what they did to Amanda Knox. Yeah. Right. They yeah. wanted to make her the other. They wanted to make her this witch, and. Ironically, it kind of circles around to Amanda in the last part of her documentary saying, I am you because I was a victim. Like mm-hmm. it can have, you know, it's an ironic twist of, of metaphor yeah. is like this can happen to you. You can be labeled this way. Right. Right. You can label the monster to say not me or not in my town. Or if you're the police detective of this small, right. you know, I I can't possibly keep my town safe from this paranormal demonic the succubus yes this this you know have to be otherworldly yeah great stuff that was fun it's almost like a halloween episode i know we'll have to plan something (laughs) we got to do a halloween episode and get al on al you know al went and is out of town and if you guys remember a couple years ago my friend al who is an expert really seriously an expert on the exorcist it's it's like he's just a real fan of the movie and he works in entertainment he is uh, working on Hocus Pocus 2. So I'm very jealous he's cool. going to work on Hocus Pocus 2. He's worked on some cool, scary movies, too. He sure has. I really want to look more into this unsolved Stockholm vampire murder. Well, let's do it. Why don't we do some? Why don't we do a whole Nordic crime? You love Nordic stuff. Yes. So why don't we do an episode about your favorite ones? We will put that on the list. Okay. Cool. Good to see you in person. It's really good to see you. I wonder if people are going to have any comment on if there's a different vibe going on from us being back in the same room. 
That'd be kind of cool. If you're out, th- when you're out there listening, if anybody's out there listening, <laughs> anybody, anybody, um, let us know what you think. If this is really cool for us to be back here together. And if you see if you notice something different. Yeah. All right, guys. See you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Good night. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast, so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.